Hey everybody, this is James Shepard. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Today I'm actually in the studio with my daughter Alana and my son Donnie, and they thought they would just welcome you themselves today. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Today we have an exciting episode for you. On this episode, it's a little bit different because we're doing a debate on the Insider's Report about cash discounting. And so, Patty is taking the opposing side. Uh, I'm for cash discounting. She is going to be against it for the purposes of this debate. And so, we're just going to talk about some of the key issues with cash discounting. Um, and then also, we have an interview that's also different than what we've done in the past. Today, we're interviewing Donnie Troy, who is an individual sales rep in the merchant services industry who has done incredibly well. And we're going to talk to him about the secret to his success and what he's done to become successful. So let's jump right in and start our episode today. Thank you for listening. All right, everybody, we got Donnie Troy here. And uh, so Donnie, I've known him for, how long have we known each other, Donnie? It's been years, I don't know how many. Ah, oh, yeah, 2000, about 2011. Yeah, so uh, Donnie Troy has built a very successful uh, merchant services business down in the Orlando area. Uh, individually, though, and I was telling Patty, I don't think you've, I mean, like you've never uh, hired anybody or anything like that. This is a, a one-man show down there, right? It is, yeah, one-man show. I do have a couple, uh, I mean, from time to time I have someone that wants to get into the industry and I try sure. to help them out and, you know, they're kind of like a sub-agent, but... Um, but it hasn't really worked out, so I pretty much just myself. That's awesome, man. I love it. So, hey, you know, expenses are low. You know, you can get revenue high. Mm -hmm. That's the way to do it. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. So tell us now. I don't know if I've ever heard this story, so I'm kind of curious as well. What were you doing before this, and then how did that end up getting you into the merchant services industry? So um, I was um, – it was always my dream to play on the PGA Tour and be a professional golfer. So right. Uh, after college, I raised some money through investors to give it a shot, and uh, I was playing golf full time, just working on my game and um, trying to, you know, elevate it to that level. Um, and it just wasn't working out for me. I, I kind of gave myself a time limit on it, right? Because you know, I, I didn't. I wanted to, you know, eventually I wanted to, you know, have a family and right. uh, be successful. And so you know, you gotta kind of evaluate yourself and I, I was 25 years old and just uh, starting to give up on the dream and I was approached by um, someone who owned an, a small ISO and sure. it really intrigued me the whole business so um, that's kind of how I got started. Sure. Um, so when you first got in with the small ISO uh, how did you prospect because I know a lot of reps like when they first get into the industry it's like they just don't know what to do what how are you prospecting um, and able to kind of keep that consistent to, to get your you know your your portfolio built up yeah so well when I actually was I was approached by uh, this person who had a small ISO and I just started doing some research on the industry and, and I actually found you on YouTube and that's kind of I reached out to you um, and I started working with you, that's how I that's how I began the business. So um, I honestly watched all your YouTube videos <laughs> five times over, and and that's I kind of followed your instructions to a T. I, I would um, I would use your your pitch 
Um, I still pretty much use the same pitch, and I just went, would go door to door. Well, you know, um, if for nothing else, you get extra brownie points that you watched all my videos back when the audio quality was like, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how you even got through that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, but they're all the 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 information and the way you presented it, and honestly, it, it works. So it was, um, you know, the audio didn't matter. It was. You know, delivering the results, so. just out of curiosity, and I, you know, just wondering, was there like a point, like, did you know from day one, like, oh, this is this is what I'm gonna do, or was there a point where you hit, you know, X amount in residual, or you know, when was it where you were kind of like, okay, cool, like this is what I'm gonna do to be really successful? Ah, uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, I was like, so when I was giving up playing golf, I I took a job uh, at at the golf course in the restaurant. And my dad had a promotional advertising business up in Massachusetts mm. where I grew up. And so I tried to do some sales for him. And um, I knew that watching him cr- create this business when it was like the late 90s, I was in like third grade and kind of like growing up to see, you know, he's, he's in sales. It's all it is is sales. It's very, there's a lot of similarities. And, sure. Um, I was just so intrigued by the merchant services business about building this residual income. And so, as soon as I, you know, made my first sale and saw how it worked, I, I kind of knew at that moment that yeah, I, I really just bought into it. And yeah. it's kind of funny looking back because, you know, I remember like, I think maybe I made like $50 for my first <laughs> client a month and right. like telling people, telling people about it and they like laughed at me like, right. like 50 bucks a month. Like, how are you going to, you can't right. do that. And I, I just saw the bigger picture. Yeah. Know, I kept my job uh, still serving tables and I, and I would do this and, you know, until, you know, you start to just build up that residual. So it's yeah. pretty cool. Now, you know what is, well, and it's funny too. I was just, I was just remembering when, uh, <clears throat> I would love to say for me, it was the same way with that first sale, but it wasn't for me. It was when I got my first buyout offer. Cause I had like, uh-huh. you know, I don't know, 1500 a month in residual or something like that. And you know, I get this buyout offer for like, you know, $15,000 or something, which was actually a really bad multiple, but I got that. And it, it, that was the first time it clicked with me. Like, Oh, like this is an asset. This is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know. exactly. So, okay. Cool. So the other thing you brought up that I have to do one follow-up question on, cause I get this a lot. So when you say you had your job at the, uh, the golf, uh, restaurant there while you were getting started, how, how many hours a day were you putting in emergent services versus this other position? Because I pretty much always tell people that working, you know, doing the two things at the same time has a low probability of success, but apparently you, you kind of made that work. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the job I had was unique. It was, I was catering for weddings. So it was, you know, I wouldn't have to go into that job until like three, three o'clock to start setting okay, up. Sure. And so I had all morning and Got it. so I was putting more time into the merchant service business, Than especially, you know, when I started seeing the results, you know, it just made sense for me to, to uh, right. to go out and, and, and prospect all day long. And, and sure. I, you know, you have so much time in the beginning to prospect. Yeah. Um, Cause you don't have to service and there's not so much support going on. So, you know, I would just go out and, and prospect and start creating leads. Hmm. Yeah, it's like I don't really talk about the story very much, Patty. But uh, when I first got into the industry, so I was coming from a job where I had thirty direct reports, uh-huh. and I'm out in the field selling, and I ended up getting a job at a call center, 
making like I think twelve dollars an hour mm. um, because I wanted so I needed something in the evening because I want to put my whole day into the business. Right. And I also wanted a dead end job because I knew that if I got a decent job, you would be. I'd be so into that. Right. <laughs> like I have to do well <laughs> at this, and then you know. So that's interesting, Donnie. Though I mean, that's kind of sounds like kind of you were like, all right, I got this job that says pay the bills or whatever, but you you were still putting a lot more time into the merchant services side than the other. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I just cool. saw a big picture and, and, and jumped right in. Cool. Okay. So let's fast forward to today and talk about a few things. So, um, well, I guess let's start with prospecting. So are you do, is there anything different about the way you're prospecting today than when you first got in? Are you doing more of like networking stuff or is it you're, you still have the tried and true prospecting method you've always done? Um, so I, I'm, I'm part, I've always been part of a, a networking group. Um, they've been different groups but I try to stay in them for at least th- three years um, at a time. And, and uh, cause you, you kind of create a lot of good relationships with these people. And I, and I stay in touch, even like the a group that I was in four years ago, I stay in touch with mm-hmm. all those professionals. Um, but um, so that, that's, that's very small. That's only once a week. So the rest of the week, I, I do a lot more phone calls than I used to sure. um, just because I can be more efficient with it. Um, like you mean like so like fo- not, you mean not, like follow up phone calls and stuff of people that maybe you've talked to in the past yeah. or that kind of okay sure so you have a, you basically you a have, a, you have a database to work off of now yeah exactly sure. uh, so a lot of exactly I, I just I guess in the beginning I was um, I would just go out and, and hit the pavement and all my follow up would be also just walking back in mm-hmm. and and now I just try to be a little bit smarter about it um, yeah and because I have that base as well so I'm kind of. It's just it's a little bit different dynamic than what it used to be. Sure. You know, out of curiosity, if you could go back in time, would you do it differently in terms of like would you have prospected at the beginning more the way you do now using the phone more or is that just kind of the way it is? You you start out in the field and you build a database and then you can be on the phone or any thoughts about that? Um, I think I don't think I would change anything. Um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of part of the process and the development. I think it's yep. so important to get out there and you just learn so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, my sales skills have gotten so much better, yep. where I'm able to kind of get through and communicate better through the phone. Where you know I had to kind of show my face more um, when I first started. Yeah, um, and it's still like so. It's invaluable to show up. I mean, I still think that's the best way to do it. It is. I think when you walk in, you know, I mean, number one, they know you're not um, in India or. What was the other one that we were just interviewed? Nepal. Carson, Nepal. Uh, they know you're actually yeah. in a, you're there because you're there. Not, you're not just saying you're there. You're actually physically walking in. So I think that has a, right. I think that has a big, a big impact. Um, and plus you have so much more, I, I think it like in sales, I mean, when you're on the phone, all you have is your words. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and that's tough. I mean, at least when you're in person, you have kind of your, you know, you can shake their hand. You can. They can look mm-hmm. in your eye. Right. You right. can you can do some different things. So, okay. So you're, when you're prospecting today, what is your current value proposition? We talk about that a lot in the podcast. Um, you know, how much of the value proposition are you, you know, are you customizing it for each kind of business owner or is it kind of a general pitch? Give us some idea of what's your value prop when you're, when you're pitching these merchants today. Um, you know, it, it's I, I believe it's myself. It's it's me. The the level of knowledge, um, yeah. the the effort, the level of, of support that I provide. Um, and I think you have to believe that if you're in this industry, um, you got to believe that as, as an agent that you're the value add. Um, just yeah. because the the you know the process, 
we all know who the processors are, are out there. They all do a great job. There's there's so many um, so many good choices for equipment today, um, and the good thing is we have access to most of them as agents. So it's about you know helping the client decide you know what's best for them, what do they need, yeah. um, and, and then and, and going forward from there. Yeah, you know, and it's like Donnie. I wish I could somehow make a video to communicate to the reps how important it is to like what you just said it's so hard to like quantify when you walk into a business and you just to like the you know in your soul like you know that if that merchant worked with you that would be their best option Mm -hmm. and you just believe that you know and then when they say oh i'm not interested or they try to blow you off you know, you're able to very transparently and honestly take that personally a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to explain mm-hmm. that to a rep, but if they're, you know, reps are always like, what's the best rebuttal? What's the best rebuttal? Well, to me, the best rebuttal is shock, surprise, and disappointment. Right. It's not what yeah. you, it's not what you say. It's like, wait, I'm sorry. What? Like, I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't explain myself very well. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been doing this for, I know what I'm talking about. I can't help you. I am, you know, like it's something about that, like taking it personally a little bit and sincerely being like, I'm the best, you know, it's selling yourself. And I don't know how to communicate that effectively, but I mean, you know what I'm saying, Donnie? I, I feel like that's a it, huge it, part absolutely, of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Something about it's that. true. And, and that kind of goes back to what we just talked about, like showing up when you're, when you're prospecting and following up in person, because yeah. it kind of, it kind of like that's, that's part of the process of earning a business owner's trust is just yeah. showing that you're there. Yep. Um, and so it's all, it all kind of, it's a lot harder to say no. Up. I think it's a lot harder for the merchant to say no in person. Oh, I agree. You know, they, yeah. That's, it, that's awkward. <laughs> you can always hang up a telephone. Uh, you're right. Uh, yeah. anyway, but all right. All right, cool. So let's move on to another really hot topic here. And I actually don't even know. I, I, I think we might've talked about this, but are you doing anything with cash discounting down there, uh, in, in the Orlando area or not? Uh, I'm not yet. Um, I definitely am looking into it, and I, I really love the idea of it. The the comp the ISO that I board most of my deals with right now they don't support it, so sure you know they don't provide the signage. And I mean, I could I know how to you know set up the account to do cash discounting. Right, um, right. And, sure. and I but I just I haven't really. Well, I'll tell you what. I wanna, I'll tell you what's so interesting, Donnie, is is that you know what you just said and of course not giving any names or anything but i mean like that's that's a call out to the isos that mm-hmm. you know if you don't offer cash discounting believe me your reps are aware of it uh and they're looking into right. it and they're interested in it and so um it's not you know it's not that i did that uh the the podcast did a few weeks ago but you know i was talking about it i mean it's not that hard to set it up i mean it's you know you got to be compliant no. but i mean compliance is like a sign and it's like you know doing a little bit of research finding mm-hmm. the right billing platform mm-hmm. i mean it's not that, that and hard. it's really about getting the right solution partner don't you think yes definitely yeah, yeah. yeah. so okay cool i was just i was just curious what any any thoughts on it donnie i mean after you've kind of looked into um, it a little bit no, I really like it. I mean, the only are you seeing thing, it? Are you only, seeing it down like, there in Orlando? You know, I haven't seen it that often. I okay. mean, I, I I have seen it, but it's not like um, it's still like the very beginning, you right? Know? Yeah, um, still on the fringes. So I think there's a huge opportunity. The, the only thing I struggle a little bit with it is I I, I kind of want to be able to set it up myself um, and kind of choose the rate. And you know, yeah. a lot of these providers they make you it has to be three point nine. You, know, you have to do three point five or three point nine and I struggle with that a little bit because, you know, I have some like automotive shops that are, you know, effective rates of, you know, under 2%. Yeah. 
Right. So it's like how much markup for do me, you I'd really like need to, to make? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. So I could do a cash discount at two point five, and and that would you know you're like a hundred basis points. My commission would go up plenty enough, and it's, that that right. like would make more sense to me. So yeah, well, yeah, because then it makes it easier for the merchant too. On some of those situations, you know, for them, if they're adding four percent onto a thousand dollar transmission replacement or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know that's kind of a big deal, and so um, yeah, I agree with that 100. percent I think you got you have to use providers that allow you to kind of, you know, be flexible when necessary there. Right. So for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so last question uh, of the day here, Donnie, is your tips. So uh, we talked about a lot of stuff already, of course, but any kind of uh, final tips or advice that you would give to reps that, and again, I mean, without giving any numbers, I mean. You know, Donnie, you've you've made you've been you've done very well, right, in this industry. And and mm-hmm. so, what would you tell reps that are just now getting into it? Uh, any tips that you give them, or advice, or encouragement? Um, definitely, uh, you have to find a mentor. Um, I mean, for this industry, you are definitely my mentor. I, I I can't tell you how much your material has helped me. Um, and so, you have to have a mentor, and and then also just like general basic sales I think it's I have other mentors as well and I study right. and read books and um, what you say and what you do uh, is everything I mean for earning a business owner's trust and, and to, to win the deal sure um, so I think that you know what I found is people kind of underestimate the effort that it takes to be successful in this business as well yeah. so um, it all, it all sounds good. Someone asked me what I do and I explained to them and they're like, Oh my God, like you, you save business owners money. Like all you got to do is tell them that and they're going to sign up with you. And it, <laughs> it, it yeah. takes a, you know what I mean? It, yeah, sure. There's so much more uh, effort that it goes into it. So I would just tell someone getting into it that you have to prospect very, very hard. And, um, in probably even more importantly is you have to follow up. Um, right. mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've won deals after 10, 15, 20 follow-ups. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you start thinking about it, you're annoying this person, but I really believe <laughs> that you're, you're earning their trust by, yeah. by just showing up. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just so important that, you know, you, can, you can't underestimate what it takes to, to get one, even just one account. You have, to, you have to prospect and follow up. Yeah, go back over and over again and, and show them that their business is important to you. So, yeah. you know what's you know what's exactly. funny? What's yeah. funny, Don? I have to tell you this is hilarious. So I I, I had the same problem with uh, as you in terms of like you know I would tell people what I do and they're like, well that just sounds like so easy, and so I came up yeah. with this thing I always tell them. I say, well let me explain how easy it is by giving you a different context. I want you to walk up to a stranger on the street and tell them that you're going to give them $50 a month for the rest of their life. All they have to do is write down their social security number, their bank account number, their routing number on a three by five card and hand it to me and I will hang on to it and promise that I will keep it safe. Yeah. (laughs) And then they're like, oh. (laughs) It's like, yeah, you go try that. You do that all day. Do that eight hours a day. See how you feel at the end of the day. (laughs) That's a good one. I'm definitely going to use that. (laughs) So anyway, hey, Donnie, that was awesome, man. Thank you so much for being on here. I love to – I really want to get more individual – you know, sales professionals from the industry on the podcast. Because I think think salespeople need to hear that. You know, they need to hear somebody like you saying, you know, this is difficult. You got to go back. You know, those are the things that really matter because, um, you know, being an expert in the industry like you are and and then having that passion about it and that passion for yourself and and the value that you provide. I mean, that's that's really how portfolios are actually built in this industry. And then everything else on top of that, the ISOs, the acquirers, all that stuff, really what happens is it, it comes down to feet on the street like Donnie here that is really putting his heart and soul out there and right. making these relationships. Right. So awesome, Donnie. Hey, man, thanks so much for your time. Really nice meeting you, Donnie. Thanks. Yes.
This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. We've been hearing a lot about cash discounting and discussing it here on our merchant sales podcasts. I did a lot of researching, including uh, extensive interviews with industry experts, solution providers, business owners, and cardholders. And I present what I learned in a lead story for the Green Sheet this month. So I thought it'd be a good idea to start this portion of this week's podcast, providing a brief overview of cash discounting and how it differs from surcharging. Then I'd like to invite James for an exchange of perspectives. We're ready. All right. Okay. Cash discounting on its face can seem a lot like surcharging, but there are very clear differences. Chief among these are the laws in 10 states that ban surcharges on card payments. The states are California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Kansas, Maine, Massachusetts, New York, Oklahoma, and Texas. Need I say those are three <laughs> of the biggest states that are in that, in, that, yeah. um, in that category. Several of those state laws, notably the ones in California and New York, have been successfully challenged in federal courts. And in both of these cases, which are now going through the appeals processes, the courts determined that bans on surcharging restrict free speech that is not misleading. Yep. Rules enforced by MasterCard and Visa create other differences, like prohibitions against surcharging on debit and prepaid debit card transactions, a registration process, and a 4% cap on surcharges, as well as detailed disclosure requirements. Right. Cash discounting is a much simpler option to sell because it's legal nationwide, can be applied to all card payments, and doesn't carry the negative connotations of a surcharge. And while most discounts hover around 4%, there are no legal caps on how much a merchant can mark up his his or her prices or discount those prices for cash-paying customers. Right. Perhaps the biggest advantage of cash discount programs um, offer ISOs and MLSs is the opportunity to offer a unique sales proposition. It's really tough trying to, to outsell the competition on price. But offering merchants a new pricing model that eliminates what, for many, is an expensive budget item. Now, that's a unique proposition. Absolutely. It's the sales dream of most ISOs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, for the sake of a good debate, I'm going to play devil's advocate and focus on the perceived disadvantages of cash discounting. Now, this is not necessarily a reflection of my personal pro- or professional sure. view. Th- this is your disclaimer. Yeah, this is my disclaimer. <laughs> but with that, let's let's go. James, Yes. I know that you've said that cash discounting is not the same as surcharging. Right. But isn't there a danger that from the cardholder's perspective, that's exactly what's happening because they're being asked to pay more than the customer who's paying for cash? Sure. You know, it's such a good question, Patty, because, um, and it's funny, like I was telling you this morning, I literally just got done training uh, a call center that does cash discounting. Um and one of the things I always tell salespeople is to not shy away from that because my answer to that question is, yes, it's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is what a lot of people do, the sales reps talk to the merchants and they try to kind of mislead them in a way of like, well, it's not surcharging. Now, that's true. It's not surcharging. But let's face it, you know, it's 
what we're doing is we're passing the cost of processing onto the consumer. Right. That's what it is. And that's the trend that a year and a half ago, I felt like that's going to be a big deal is passing the cost of processing onto the consumer. Now we have found a much better way to do that with cash discounting because people like discounts and they hate surcharges. Right. So it's a much better way to do it. It's legal in all 50 states. You can do it on debit, all the things you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So those advantages are there. But at the end of the day, um, that's exactly what it is. And by the way, that's exactly why all the ISOs are doing 3.99 or 4% max. Right. Because they all feel like eventually Visa is, you know, it, it's going to work out that it's going to be surcharging is what it's, you know, the same rules are going to apply. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. You know, I had a, I had a friend um, who I was talking to about this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she said, uh, you know, I don't mind using my credit card for a $3 purchase. Right. She said, because, you know, I get rewards. Right. But on the other hand, if I'm going to get a $3 discount for paying by cash, right, I'm going to go for that because it's not worth my while. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, you know, I had another friend that, um, you know, said, I just see cash discount surcharge. It's all the same to me. And I don't like being asked to pay more money to use my own money. Sure. And, you know, there's something, there's something, you know. Yeah, there's something to that. And I I think, you know, if there's any statistic so far that's been the most interesting to me, Mm -hmm. it's been that less than 1% of cardholders notice it. Yeah. So it's almost a moot point. It's like, you know, when I talk to people and it's like, you know, they've been paying a, um, a surcharge on their phone bill for years. Right. Every time you call to pay over the phone, they've been paying a surcharge at the utility company. Mm-hmm. And it's not that people, you know, if, if you polled 100 consumers and said, how do you feel about the idea of this? And you described what it is. I'm sure 94 of them would say, you know, they aren't, they don't, that they would rather not have it because it's less money for them. But the thing is, only one of the 100 is actually going to notice it at the store. Well, it's interesting you say that because I did a poll myself. I did a Facebook poll last right. week. Okay. And I, you know, posted the question to my friends, okay, this is what cash discounting is. Right. So do you think this is good or bad? Right. And I think I got about 20, 25 responses. Sure. Only one said they didn't like the idea. Wow. Consumers. Consumers. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, you know, these were pretty savvy consumers. Right. You know, and and a couple of them even said, you know, oh, I understand this cost of doing business. Right. Right. So, uh, and I mean, there's no denying, I mean, for the business owners, and I mean, again, going back to Kroger, you know, I just talked about that in a, a, a video that I did, a podcast I did a few days ago. I mean, um, Kroger, I mean, they're like, they don't want to take Visa. Right. <laughs> I like, you know, why? Because their margin is 1.55%. Right. That's their gross margin. Exactly. And so some of these businesses, you know, it's just gotten to be a little, and, and you know, the other thing too, for me, my, one of the things, one of the reasons I'm actually so passionate about cash discounting now is because when you look into interchange and you see what Visa and MasterCard have set the interchange rates at in the UK and Australia mm-hmm. and Canada and mm-hmm. Brazil, well, you look at that and, and of course it's because it's regulated. Right. And I get that. And I don't want regulation here in the US. I'm a big I'm all about the free market. But the thing is, in a free market, the the main word that makes that happen is the word free. Right. So that means business owners should be able to say, no, that's mm-hmm. enough. You know, it's mm-hmm. too much. Mm-hmm. So we want to fight back and we're going to put these in place. Now, I, my hope is that that will put some pressure on the big banks and Visa MasterCard to work together to lower interchange a little bit. Maybe. Maybe. 
probably not, but you know, it'd be nice. Um, and, and then probably, you know, regulation or some kind of ruling will come down the line that will make it a little, I think it should be, I think it should be a little bit more controlled than it is. A little and, bit. And, and, and it probably should be. But, you know, I think one of the things we've discussed before is, you know, if you look at the Durban Amendment, the way they wrote that in there. <laughs> I mean. And they basically said Visa and MasterCard cannot put the kibosh on this. Right. Uh, no network. Right. Can put in place rules and regulations right. that will make this difficult for the merchant to do. Absolutely. Yep. And, and I think that that to me, is is a really important consideration. It is. And see, the way that this is going now, it's kind of funny because now we're like switching roles a yeah, little bit here, right? Yeah. But, uh, but I, I really believe that I know how it's going to get attacked. I really believe the way it's going to get attacked, and there's some stuff in states, some states already are, are exploring oh, yeah. this. Sure they are. The way it's going to get attacked is that they're going to say, they're going to start to regulate what a price increase means. The cash discount part is safe, right? You could always offer a cash discount, but right. what they're going to start doing is they're going to say posting a sign at the counter isn't a price increase. You have to go through and do a price increase. Yeah, yeah. You know I what think, I mean? I, 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 that's one of the points I was going to make as well. Yeah. So I think that could happen, and obviously that would be really bad for the industry because that's you know that's where I'm um and also really bad for merchants too because now they're trying to compete with Walmart and and Target and so they don't want to put do a price increase on the sticker and I think that's where you're going to have a hard time also in having those kinds of regulations put in place because I right. think you know small businesses are consumers exactly and 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 you know lawmakers listen to their listen to their constituents right so yeah. It, well, and again, it'll be interesting because it's going to, you know, the, the real tipping point is going to be it has a huge impact on business owners and they know it. Right. It has a very small impact on consumers and they don't know it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I believe that over time, the squeaky wheel gets the grease here. I think that the small business owners are going to, when they, when, you know, when finally Visa gets around to declaring war on this, I think that the small business owners are going to say, no, uh -uh. there's we have five hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand business owners doing this right now, and we're all saving a ton of money. No, and you've been setting the rules for all these years, right? And now it's now we're right. turning the table. And not to mention, what was it in that uh, uh, last episode we did? Seventy six percent decrease in yes. fraud with the advent of EMV. Yes. How much were the interchange fees lowered as a result? None. None. They were None. increased. And in fact, <laughs> you know why were interchange fees increased over over the years? For fraud, and you know that's exactly my point. And they and they even in the in the um, uh, what was that hearing? Uh, maybe it was a year and a half ago. I was reading about when they were coming out with the EMV dates and all that. Mm -hmm. Maybe longer than that. But uh, there was a, a, a congressional hearing, and some of the executives were there from Visa, and they asked them that question, and they said, you know, all these years you've cited, right. you know, fraud. fraud, and so they said, so are we you know, anticipating a reduction? And they said, no. no. No, we have stockholders we have to care about. Right. And that's that's the issue, of it course, is, is that— Which, again, know, to me, I'm like, that's great. I'm a capitalist. I'm excited that you have stockholders and you're trying to make a profit. Where where I have a problem is if if you're trying to restrict either side of a market, Right. that's where I have a problem. Right, because that's no longer a free market. That's no longer a free market. Business owners should be able to fight back if they want to. Visa doesn't want consumers to realize how expensive their services are. Exactly. You know, I, I had a friend who—actually, one of the friends who, who commented on my poll mm -hmm. said that— Exactly. She's like, I'm all for uh, cash discounting because I spent too many years in my younger life, you know, when I was younger, caught up in the debt trap. Exactly. And if people understand that it costs money, right. they're going to be less likely to use right. it. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and again, the, the irony of all of that to me is 
every study I've seen so far from every processor I've worked with on this cash discounting, mm -hmm. the merchant who goes from not doing it to doing it, it does not actually change anything. Right. If they did 15,000 in volume the previous month, they do 15,000 plus 4% the next month. Right, right. It and doesn't change anything. from people as well, yeah. Which is kind of sad. I mean, it's like consumers li consumers literally don't even notice it at all. Right, right. Um, and they're paying more and they don't even know it. Exactly, right. yeah. So. Okay, well, let me... What let, else let you me got? I hear from a lot of folks, and you in particular, and you as well. Sure. Um, the cash discounting is, is taking off. But when I surveyed my friends, right. in addition to asking them what they thought about sure. uh, discounting, um, I asked how many of you have, have, have experienced it in your shopping? Right. Of the two dozen or so friends that I had, that I, that I asked, right. and they were living, I, I, so I, had, I, uh, I got responses from two dozen friends in mm -hmm. one dozen states. Right. That's a, fairly, That's a pretty good, yeah, yeah, pretty good sample group. Middle yeah. of the country, sure. both sides, north and south, sure. right? Of those two dozen friends, only three said that they had even seen it. Sure. And um, two of those folks said they had only seen it in two establishments. Right. So a couple things about that I would say. So first of all, um, well, first of all, I'll rebut that, I guess, with just, again, the statistic that less than 1% of consumers notice it. So Here's another statistic. Go ahead. I'm gonna yeah, throw yeah, yeah, out please. There. Just only about 2% of merchants nationwide offer it offer it um yeah i would guess that's probably a few months off but it's probably close to that i uh -huh. and, and here, here's my thought on that so my guess right now is i feel like our industry is just in the last six months has started to pretty seriously market cash discounting mm -hmm. so you know in the last six months is when a lot of this almost all the super isos now have it and that's what makes a big difference right um the best I can figure from my connections and conversations and looking at the industry as a whole, um, I think that between ten to 20,000 merchants a month are signing up for cash discounting. Hmm. Now, that seems like a massive number, but there's 5 million, million. businesses, exactly. right? So even if we're at, say we're at 10,000, then that's 120,000 new merchants a year. There's that's 5 million businesses. So the percentages are just you know, in five years at that rate, it would be 10%. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to take off. I could see us being at 10% in 24 months. Mm -hmm. But again, you got to keep in mind too, like that if we're at 10% of all businesses, my thing is what percentage of what I would call eligible businesses, because JCPenney, Walmart, Target, they're not going to roll this out. Right. I could see that I could more see them doing something like what Kroger has done mm -hmm. of saying like, yeah, Visa, really? You want to try us? How about we just don't accept your card, you know, for six months or, you know, I could see them doing some kind of, you know, that's to me, that's their way of pushing back. Mm -hmm. Small business owners don't have that kind of leverage. So cash discounting is their way of pushing back. So I don't see this as, you know, maybe it'll go mainstream eventually, maybe it won't. But mm -hmm. I would say those numbers are correct. But again, 2% of all businesses means probably 10% of or maybe 7% of small physical location retail restaurant locations. You know what I mean? Right, so right. if you really get down to the segment where, because, oh, for instance, you know, you can't do this with e-commerce. Right. I mean, there's no cash there. Right. Now, uh, there actually is a gateway I know of right now that has a program that they're developing where they're going to do it with cash discount when you do ACH. Okay. Because ACH is cheaper and sure. it's a cash equivalent. Sure. So, you know, I think that'll get there, but it's just, it's a lot more complicated because right. then your gateway has to change the, the way you're doing your shopping sure. cart. You know and what I mean? technically you could do checks as a cash discount. Exactly. Sure. Right. So, I mean, I think that we'll get there. Um, but again, as of right now, I think the 2% number is a little low just because that's looking at all businesses when there's only a small segment that are even doing it. 
So, okay. That we're selling it to, I should say. But here's, here's, here's another point. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Don't merchants, by extension, ISOs and MLSs run the risk of uh, this trend backfiring? Yeah. I mean, then just what do me... you think? What, what are some ways that you would see it backfiring? Well, for example, um, one of my friends said to me, you know, uh, she used to play, pay for by card in, in a hair salon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then they started offering a cash discount. Right. So now before she goes to the hair salon, she stops at the ATM. Sure. Okay. Uh, I had another friend. Uh, we're here in Pennsylvania. Right. And I'm in Maryland. And Sheets is a big uh, convenience store. Sure. A friend of mine said, well, if Sheets started doing that, I would just go over to the ATM. Because their ATM is free. Because their ATM is free. Sure. Yeah. You know? Um, and, you know, and, and also... So it's sort of like my feeling is is that you know are we are we uh, killing the goose that that uh, <laughs> laid the golden eggs. egg and in and to that I would also add you know as you've alluded the the card associations can't be that happy about this and what if they were to you know somehow you know figure out a way to make this hard, harder economically to, or less sure. economical to do sure well you know to the first one you know it's funny because that is that argument is the one that I had in my head a year and a half ago when I said this is coming out but I don't think it's a good thing right um however I'm I'm a I'm a pragmatist so I look at the data and again the processors I've worked with where I've seen this right that doesn't play out and and yes maybe people would you know it's funny it's like you know if you I saw a thing recently that if you uh, poll Americans on which television stations they watch and like everything, it's really skewed towards PBS with what they say. Oh, really? But it's not reality. No. Because people like to say that they are the kind of person that watches PBS. Right. But really they're watching ESPN or NBC or something else, you know. Right. Um, so I think in the same way, it sounds noble to say. I would just go over to the cash machine and take an extra seven minutes to get my gas. Mm-hmm. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You would just go in and use your card, and you'd pay, and you wouldn't, and you wouldn't even notice that they added the three percent or whatever. And so, I think the reality of the marketplace is that as businesses implement this, now having said that, and and I, I really try to stress this, you know, my position isn't that this is right for every business, right? And my position isn't even that you know if it's right for a business initially. Mm-hmm. I think you got to sell businesses with giving them the option and saying, this is the cash discount price. This is the regular price. So we're still going to save you money even if you try cash discounting and it doesn't work. But what you understand these businesses, I mean, some of them, if they lost, some of these small businesses, if they lost 15 customers, but they save 12 grand a year, mm-hmm. they still come out way ahead. Mm-hmm. And it's not like this is the first time they've had to do something that was a negative for a small population of their customers. I mean, they moved locations or to lower their rent or they did a price increase or they right. stopped carrying a product and they alienated seven customers, mm-hmm. but they increased their profits. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is. This is a decision, a pragmatic decision about are you in business to make everyone happy or are you in business to make most people happy and maximize your profits? Good points, James. Thank you. That's the sales pitch anyway, right? Okay. (laughs) Good stuff. Awesome. Thanks, Patty. Thank you. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange, 
and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with a leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. All right, our first question comes from Tim. And I'm going to kind of scan through this one. It's a little bit of a longer question about cash discounting. When selling cash discount to a merchant, and let's say they have an average ticket of $20 to $30 and are priced pretty good on Interchange Plus or flat rate, uh, they have a current effective rate of, say, 2 2.5%. When you have the conversation about cash discounting and you're going to price them at 3.99%, for example, and they ask why so high, I'm currently in low twos, you know, how do you go about explaining that? Mm, interesting question. Now, uh, let me answer this question in a couple ways. Number one, I can tell that uh, Tim does not sell cash discounting mm-hmm. because merchants don't ask that. Mm. Um, the only ones that will ask that are merchants who have a larger one of two things. Either they have a large ticket size or they have a large volume. Okay. If they have large volume, they're pretty aware of their you know effective rate. So um, a couple ways to answer this. I mean, obviously, the macro question is, should if their effective rate is 2%, should you price them at 3.99? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into all that. Maybe, you you know, depends on your rationalization there. Um, but the way that I would answer it from a sales perspective is, you know, whenever you're doing interchange plus pricing, you know, you can tell the merchant, we can bring your, your price really, really low because we know we're going to make 10 basis points or 20 basis points or 30 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Because if your interchange costs randomly go up because you happen to take a lot more rewards cards or something like that, you are the one that bears the brunt of that, not us. Right. But with cash discounting for all intents and purposes, as far as residual works and, and things, it's flat rate pricing. Flat rate. Right. You know? And so flat rate pricing has always been a little higher just because there's fluctuation. And so when you have a high interchange month, we can't be responsible for that. And so, you know, the other thing that honestly a lot of reps are using when if that question is ever asked is, you know, that's just what it is. That's the program. And so sometimes in sales, you know, I think one of the most important things as a sales rep is to figure out what arguments you want to get into and which ones you don't. Mm-hmm. Um that's an argument that, quite frankly, I don't get into. When I'm selling cash discounting, I just don't get into that at all. So when someone's like, well, now wait, my effective rate or whatever, I say, this is a totally different program. Like, that, this is what it is. Um, but what other questions do you have? <laughs> and, you right, know, right. and again, they don't, I mean, they don't really care because they're not paying Well, that's it. what I would think. If they're not paying it, right. they shouldn't really care anyway, right? They I mean, don't. Yeah. So, and again, most merchants, now, again, you, you, you know, you may get some where, uh, again, I've, I run into somewhere it's like, you know, they're doing, they have 15 locations doing a hundred thousand dollars a month per location. Well, they're going to be a little more aware because they realize they're going to have more of a backlash because they're a larger, more public business. Right. And when that story comes out in the paper, you know, or whatever, they mm-hmm. want to be able to say, Hey, look, this was our cost. We just passed our costs through, um, with a small increase to cover because of the cost of the program. But, but they can say that anyway, because the 3.99% is your cost. That's what you're charging them. And so, right. um, you know, honestly, Tim, I would say it's kind of a non-issue from a sales perspective. Again, from a perspective of what's right and what's wrong, I, you know, that's a conversation to have with your processor and, and figure out the program and see what kind of value they're adding with it. Yeah, but I think your point's well taken. It's not going to be a question they'll get much. I wouldn't think so. Uh, I certainly haven't. Um, uh, I lied. Actually, I had one pizza shop one time ask me that, and uh, I gave the answer I just gave to you, and they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> um Here's a really good one. I like this question. Uh, Jim asks, uh, 
I would, uh, he's looking for some tips on closing, specifically when you have a merchant that is clearly interested but afraid of change or pulling the trigger to make the switch. Mm. <clears throat> so, Jim. And I, I know Jim really well, so I can be really, you know, blunt here with Jim. But um, for the rest of you as well, so let's talk about sales for a second, okay? So the most important thing in improving your sales ability is taking personal responsibility for results. Mm-hmm. So let me rephrase this question, Jim. The question is, what are tips for me to close someone when I have not yet earned their trust? Excellent. That is why they're not buying. Mm -hmm. So if you've given somebody a good value proposition, you know, again, if I walk up to somebody on the street and say, I want to give you $100, then they're going to take it. Right. Unless for some reason they don't trust me and they think I'm, you know, I don't know, it's like a a bogus bill, a bogus bill or, you know what I mean? There's got to be a reason, but the only reason is trust. So I would back that that question up a little bit, and I would say you could do a couple things, Jim. I would say, number one, the most important thing is back up and look at your sales process. How much do you know about this merchant at that moment? Um, do you know anything about their family? Do you know anything about how long have they been in business? Do right. you know what, what their struggles are? Um, because if you haven't gotten them to open up and share information with you, well, then they're not going to trust you because information is the currency of trust. Right. And so you've got to get them to share information with you, get them to open up more, um, and that's going to have a huge impact. But let's assume that you've done that, and now they're just kind of on the fence, and they're saying, well, I need to think about it or whatever. Then what I would tell you at that point is start off by going with the flow and um, you know agree with them. Well, I don't know. This, this I really kind of need to think about this. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with you. I would never want you to make a decision that you're not comfortable with. You have to have that buffer. Now, we're, I'm going to go back in and try to close it in a second, but you got to start by making them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. The worst thing you can do is is be combative. Right. Oh, I really need to think about this. No, you don't. This is a great decision. You should just move ahead right this now. This is an old brain or just do it. Right. <laughs> Those lines sound funny, but they don't work. Right. Uh, instead, agree with them. Oh, of course. I would never want you to make a decision you're uncomfortable with. I want you to take as much time as you need to think about this. Um, how do you, how would you feel about next week? Maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, something like that. Would that be? Would you be comfortable if I swung back by then to check on things? Mm-hmm. And they're going to say sure. So then you set a time. Okay, which would work better for you? Tuesday at three p.m. or Wednesday at nine a.m. Right. Well, Wednesday at 9 a.m. Okay, great. I will see you Wednesday at 9 a.m. And I'm going to give you a great tip right now, Jim, because I've used this a million times. It works almost every time. Once you say, yeah, next Wednesday, 9 a.m., literally turn like you're going to walk away and then turn back and say, oh, I'm sorry. One other thing, just so I can be prepared when I come back on Wednesday, what is it that you're thinking over? Mm. What is it specifically that you're thinking about? Just so I can be prepared for the meeting. By you turning away, it all their defenses go down because they're like, yes, I got rid of that sales rep. Right. I can get back to my inventory report. They've right. checked out. Their guard is down. You turn around. Uh, now what? Is, and then they're going to give you the real objection. Well, the truth is, and that's usually what they'll say. Well, the truth is, or well, honestly, and then they're going to say whatever. I, I don't think the savings really justify me making the switch. Or last time I switched, the person really screwed me over and I don't want to take the risk again, whatever. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to get the real objection. And now you can say, I am, you know, and then you got to acknowledge that and say, you know, Susan, thank you so much for sharing that information with me. I really appreciate that. And now that you've shared that information with me, I, I could be wrong, but I really think I might be able to just answer that question right now for you. Here's what I would do. And then you can answer it, whether it's how about I come back in a couple of days with a letter of reference or whatever. You give them that conditional that they need to, to move forward. So good stuff, Jim. That was a really good question. Uh, let's see here. Let's go on to our 
last one, actually. Um, how many appointments should you have to get a 25% proposal win rate? And how many proposals to get a 25% client win rate? I have a 24% win rate, et cetera, et cetera here. Uh, interesting. Okay, so um, I'm going to kind of answer like a different question. Uh, this is Joshua, by the way, uh, but kind of in the same rate. So let me talk to you about how these numbers play out. So I'm assuming that the business model you're describing here is that you are going to get on the phone and you're going to call and schedule appointments for yourself to go walk in face to face and and close the merchant. That's I think I'm understanding the question that that's what you're saying. So if that's the case, let me give you some numbers. Um, if you spend two hours a day on the phone, um, you can usually set yourself up with five appointments a day. So five appointments in two hours. Now I say that these are not like rock solid, please come sign me up appointments. Mm -hmm. These are, I'd like to stop by and drop off some marketing materials, introduce myself and give you my business card. Mm -hmm. I'm a local business owner, that kind of thing. And it's as you making the calls for yourself. So two hours a day, five appointments a day. Um, you know, you do your schedule however you want. So a lot of reps like to do half a day, twice a week um, to get the appointments they need for the rest. Some of them like to do all of it on Monday, you know, whatever. So plan your time out, but about two hours, get you five appointments. Um, five appointments, you should be able to get one sale. Mm -hmm. Five appointments, you're usually going to get two statements, one sale. So that's how that usually those numbers should play out, Joshua, with that business model. Um, if they're playing out worse than that, then obviously there's two variables to adjust. One is to work harder. Right. And the other one is to close better. Mm -hmm. So either grab a sales book or turn off Netflix. Um, but one of those two things will probably impact your numbers <laughs> in a pretty big way. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. So awesome. Great questions there. So that was our questions from the field today. Do me a favor. Send me some more questions. Um, we still got quite a few in the database here. We're getting more in, but I'd love to hear from you. And Patty and I are ready to answer your questions. Between Patty and I, I mean. We should know everything. We know right? everything. Don't we, Patty? I mean, <laughs> I'd like to think so. <laughs> so email james at ccsalespro.com. James at ccsalespro.com salespro.com with your questions and just make sure you put in the somewhere in the subject line or the email podcast question and that way I know that that's what it was and you're not just emailing me a question and then again I won't respond to your email we're just going to put it right in here in the database and then we're going to you know keep listening to the to the uh, podcast and you will hear an answer to your question eventually and keep on listening awesome thanks everybody thank you for listening to the merchant sales podcast whether you are an industry veteran processing executive or just trying to learn about the payment space we appreciate your time the merchant sales podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business